Good morning, church. Uh, excited to continue on in our time of worship through the Word. Right now, I'm really stoked to be jumping into our little Easter series this week. Over the course of this week, going into Easter Sunday next week, we're going to be setting aside some time just to do some special remembrance and special worship and special study together um, centered around Easter. Hopefully, you got, I put out a video a couple days ago kind of describing a little bit what we're going to be doing and how we're going to be celebrating Easter as a church this year. Hopefully, you get to see that. If not, jump on the Facebook page or the YouTube page and, and grab a hold of that video when we're done here. But I'm really excited for what we get to do this week. And, and part of the reason I'm so excited for it is just, um, I think we all know that Easter's just going to be a little weird for us this year. Um, just with the reality of everything going on, a lot of all our norms as a family, our norms as a church, just aren't going to exist the way they normally do. We're not going to get to get up super early and go to a park at sunrise and drink coffee with friends and worship. We're not, a lot of us are going to get to have a big feast in our home and see extended family and do things like Easter egg concert community events. And it's, it's hard enough when something takes away just kind of our normal rhythms as a family. But when traditions like that start getting pulled away, sometimes it just feels like the rug gets pulled out from underneath you. And so I think for that reason, I'm that much more excited about our time uh, to be able to just intentionally come together as a church from all the different places where we're holed up and sheltering at home and, and reflect on the beauty, the amazingness, the truth, the power of the risen Jesus, of our King and our Lord Jesus, who rose from the dead and who made a way for us to life and peace and hope. So today, uh, if you guys want to go ahead and turn to Matthew 21, uh, we're going to be talking about that kingdom and that king um, in, in a way that's a little traditional, um, but I think it'll be really good for us. So um, if you don't know, Matthew 21 is kind of the traditional text for today. Today is Palm Sunday, um, and normally on Palm Sunday, or if you don't actually, maybe if you don't know about just kind of Holy Week traditions in general, most of the time um, we, we talk about the Sunday leading up to Easter all the way to Easter. There's different aspects of Christ's final week on earth. We kind of remember those different aspects of his final week of ministry, starting on Palm Sunday with the triumphal entry and Christ entering into Jerusalem and leading through those last few days and his last supper together and his crucifixion and, and into the resurrection next Sunday at Easter. And so we're going to go through that journey together. Um, but I think, I just, I think it's going to be good. Uh, hopefully you're already there at Matthew 21. You'll notice uh, your Bible, maybe your little headings, if you have headings in your Bible, calls this the triumphant entry. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, I mean, we talked about this last week, but remember, Jesus's primary message was the coming of God's kingdom. Jesus is a king. He's our king. He's the king of that kingdom. And Holy Week is his enthronement. Uh, and this text is kind of the kickoff ceremony. Um, but as we're going to see today and over the course of this week, um, God's kingdom is upside down. It inverts human expectations, which uh, I'm, I'm going to say to you guys, and I think we'll see as we dig through this, um, that's actually a good thing. That's actually what we long for. So let me pray for us, and we'll read this text. Jesus, we ask uh, just for your clarity this morning, we ask uh, for your spirit to be with us, for you to speak 
through your word, to speak through this time. God, as we spend a few minutes just to reflect on um, the beauty of your kingship, your authority of the kingdom, the upside down kingdom that you've invited us into, we ask Holy Spirit that you would be our teacher, that you would be our discipler, that you would convict us, that we would leave this time this morning having spent our morning with you. We love you, Jesus. We trust you to do this work, so we pray it in your name. Amen. So starting in the first verse, the 21st chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, we read this. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. So what's, what's the story of this text? The story itself is relatively straightforward and simple. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. When he gets there, he sends his disciples. They go and get a donkey. He rides into town on the donkey while people are going wild, singing praises to him and honoring him and laying down their cloaks and palm branches in front of him for the donkey to walk on. And then he gets into the city and everyone's all excited and stoked that Jesus is in the city. And that's just kind of it. Um, we, we get this kind of note here from Matthew that Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy, but that's, that's really the story. So ultimately, we kind of have to ask not what's the story, but what, is the, what are we going to do with this story? What is the meaning behind this story? So here's what I'd like to do today. We're going to jump back and look at Matthew 16 to give us some general context. I think it'll kind of set the stage for what is so powerful in this story. And then we're going to kind of walk through some of the specific events that lead us from Matthew 16 up to Matthew 21, our text for today. And I think that'll just kind of give us some of the deeper meaning behind this, some of Matthew's original intention for his audience, which I think is just if I'm honest, it's just going to make um, God's meaning for us today really evident. Uh, which, by the way, to lay my cards in front of you guys, is essentially this. God's kingdom inverts our expectations, and that's a good thing. And then we're going to end at our time with communion. So, first, let's 
put this whole thing in context. So remember, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I talked about this kind of a little bit last week because we were in the Sermon on the Mount, but just a quick refresher. Matthew is one of the four Gospels, so one of the first four books of the New Testament that tell kind of the life story and the message and uh, the meaning of Jesus' life and his ministry, right? Matthew is the first of those Gospels, and it tells us the gospel story from a very distinctly Jewish perspective. And so a lot of the concerns Matthew has um, is essentially to help the Jewish population see Jesus as the prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. So uh, in, in that, with that kind of lens in place, let's back up and look at Matthew 16. And I'm actually going to ask you guys to turn there. We're going to look at a short little passage in verse 13. But before we actually look at that, what's, what's going what's gonna to set the stage here going into this, this space in Matthew 16 is this. We're well into Jesus's ministry. So Matthew 16 really puts us on the tail end of the three years of public ministry where Jesus has traveled around the northern part of Palestine, Galilee, preaching this message. We talked about this last week, this unified message of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. And he's backed up that message with his miraculous ministry of healing the sick and casting out demons and showing authority and control over nature and all these different things. He's been traveling around Galilee, the northern part of Palestine, preaching this message and doing these works for three years. And essentially, he's worked up up a massive following. And there is this tension building around Jesus's ministry that essentially centers around the question, is he the Messiah? Now, that may not mean a huge amount to us. This term, I mean, it means a ton to us because we, we use that term a lot in reference to Jesus. But, but why that's such a biting question for these people? We have to put ourselves in the mindset of the first century Jewish audience. You have to remember, these people are oppressed. They've been conquered by Rome. They're living in systematic injustice and oppression. And they're waiting, longing, praying for God to come and free them. Remember, the Jews are a people whose primary identifier as a culture is that their God supernaturally intervened in their life to end their oppression. Right? That's, that's the main thing that they rally around as a cultural identifier was that they are God's chosen people, that he showed up and he freed them from slavery in Egypt. And here they are, however many thousands of years later, once again as a hurting and oppressed people, and they are longing for a Messiah. Now, the way that term is used in the Old Testament is a little different than, than how it's kind of flavored for us post-Jesus, post-cross, in, in the era of the church, the actual term Messiah really just means anointed king. It just means anointed leader, a leader that God sets aside for the purpose of freeing his people. Think, think the book of Judges, right? God's people get into trouble. They get into oppression. They cry out to him for mercy. He anoints or raises up a special leader who rallies the troops and fights for freedom and supernaturally has victory. And God's people are freed from oppression. This is Israel's history. This is their identity. And this is what these people are longing for. 
By the time Jesus steps onto the scene, they've been longing for this messianic freedom for hundreds of years as they've moved from oppressive empire to oppressive empire, generation after generation, God's people are longing for him to do as he did in the past, to raise up a Messiah, anointed leader, to rally the troops and draw Israel together and cast off their oppressors so that they can be a free people again. So as Jesus travels around preaching about the kingdom of God and doing supernatural divine miracles, it only makes sense that people are starting to go, this might be it. This might be the Messiah. This might be him. The problem is that Jesus basically refuses to actually confirm or deny the rumors, as it were. In the early part of his ministry, Jesus keeps using these really uh, 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 vague and elusive and hard to understand terms to kind of hint at his divine mission, hint at his messiahship. But when he's challenged on it, when people ask questions or when he does a miracle and people start to call him the messiah, he basically just gets the heck out of Dodge. He'll go in some place, he'll proclaim the kingdom, he'll do these miracles, people will start to get excited and go, show that this is the Messiah, and then he just takes off and leaves. He's avoiding the issue. And that sounds weird to some of us, right? But but, but there really is purpose and strategy and intention in how Jesus structured and worked out his ministry, and we're actually going to see that today. Uh, but, But going into Matthew 16... What's essentially happening, and the thing we have to remind ourselves of, is that Jesus' ministry is at this point where basically everyone is going, stop leaving us hanging. Let us know. Are you the Messiah or not? Like, we've got to know. And in verse 13 of Matthew 16, we read this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see what's going on here? Jesus finally broaches the topic with his followers. Who do people think that I am? And they they dance around it, right? And so he gets really specific. Who do you think I am. 
And I love this scene in part just because I love Peter as, as a kind of a character in the story of the early church. But Peter really goes out on a limb. He, he puts it all out there. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter puts his neck out. He is all in. Jesus is the Messiah. He thinks, he believes Jesus is their long-awaited Savior. And Jesus' response is essentially, you guessed it. I love this. This is a hinge point in Jesus' ministry. Because at this point, it's out there. Jesus has taken on the public mantle of Messiah. And even though he tells his followers, like, don't tell anyone, it's out of the bag at this point. And, and, and the whole story of Jesus's ministry changes right here. But look what Jesus does. He immediately, immediately shifts and starts teaching his disciples about some of the ways they've misunderstood the ministry of the Messiah. The Messiah is not going to do what they think he's going to do. He tells them about how he's going to be rejected by the religious leaders and he's going to suffer and he's going to die and then rise from the dead on three days. And look who puts their neck out there again. Peter tells Jesus he's wrong. No way, Jesus, you're the Messiah. The priests in Jerusalem, they're gonna get behind you. They're gonna rally the people and we're gonna kick out Rome. That's how this works. And Jesus straight up knocks him down. No, Peter, you are wrong. And look what he says. Remember, remember, put everything in Matthew in the, in the lens of Jesus's kingdom proclamation ministry. You are putting your thing, your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. You have your eyes in the wrong place, Peter. That's not how this works. And if you were to continue on to Matthew 17, Jesus does this amazing thing. He takes Peter and a few of his disciples and he takes them up on a mountain and we get the story of the transfiguration where Jesus reveals the fullness of his glory and his deity and his godhood and his kingship to these men. It's this really intense scene where they see Jesus as he truly is, as the son of God, and it messes with them. It's actually a really cool scene, but it's also really strategic on Jesus's part. He has already told them, the cat's out of the bag. I am the Messiah. That's what's going down. But how the Jewish people understood the ministry of the Messiah and what Jesus was going to do are so vastly far from each other that Jesus needs to make sure his disciples stay with him and stay the course when everything they understand falls apart. I mean, look at it. Peter, the one who, according to Jesus, through supernatural knowledge, has actually declared Jesus as Messiah, is the first one to say, no, Jesus, you're not going to die and raise from the dead. That's not what the Messiah does. And Jesus not only rebukes him, but then goes and shows him, look, you were right. I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the set, of, the set apart one. You were right. But this is not going to go down how you think it is. And after that point, Jesus starts marching toward Jerusalem. 
And if you follow Matthew 16 through 21, it's the story of this final journey Jesus is making from Galilee to Jerusalem to face his death. And all along the way, there's these multiple times where he brings it back up with his followers. The Messiah is not what you think it is. When we get to Jerusalem, it's not going to go down how you think it's going to go down. I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. But in three days, I'm going to rise. And he keeps saying this. He couldn't say it more plainly. But the reality is, it basically doesn't matter. It basically doesn't matter. His followers have no concept of a Messiah who's going to die and then raise from the dead three days later. There's no theological construct for that in Judaism. There's no teaching on that in the teachings about the Messiah. They're hearing Jesus say this stuff, but remember, they're really used to Jesus saying stuff they don't understand. So they're just marching toward Jerusalem going, yeah, Jesus, sure, cool. And all they're thinking about is all of God's people uniting around their Messiah and their King and raising up and throwing off their oppressors. That's what they're ready for. It's what, it, it, it's what is building this fever pitch. And as Jesus makes his way toward Jerusalem, the crowds get bigger and they get more wild. And by the time we get to our text in Matthew 21, the, the crowd is whipped into a frenzy. And Jesus, in that context, goes and gets his followers to bring him a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. Now, Matthew tells us that this is specifically set up to fulfill a prophecy. You can read about that in Zechariah 9. Um, but the reality is Jesus is setting up this scene on purpose. And, and I need you guys to hear that because there's tons of cultural significance and weight behind this action. And the people are not blind to it. They may not know the full depth of the imagery that, that Jesus is bringing up with kind of this living parable, but, but they get the gist of the message he's bringing out here. And, but by, by riding a donkey into the city with his procession behind him, Jesus is taking the posture of a triumphant king returning to his city after a successful war. You see, in Jewish culture, the king rode a horse to war. And if he rode the horse back, that meant either the war was continuing on or he was coming to conquer this city, not come home. But a donkey, the donkey meant peace. The donkey is what the king would ride if the war was over and peace was returned and people could go back to their lives. The donkey is a common animal used for agriculture, not battle. And so Jesus comes to ascend his throne as a king of peace, not a king of war. And remember, he's been telling his followers since chapter 16. He's not a military hero. He's not a revolutionary that they're waiting for. His kingdom is different. He is simultaneously declaring his messiahship Right? by coming in as this triumphant king with this, all this pomp and circumstance around him, but also his peaceful intentions for the whole city. But as the week goes on, and as has been the case for his whole journey up to Jerusalem, basically the people just don't care. 
They know what they want out of a Messiah and they will demand it to the point of Jesus' death. Look how the people respond to Jesus. They lay down cloaks, they lay down palm branches, they're shouting, Hosanna, son of David. This is how you treat the king. This is how you treat the Messiah. This blessing, Hosanna, it, it literally means save us. But by Jesus' day, it had become kind of this general blessing of messianic expectation, crying out, Lord, save us. And so when they're saying, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna, like the son of David, they are declaring Jesus is the Messiah, which has all this loaded, weighted military imagery for the people of Jerusalem. Now remember, there's, there's by, by, by most historical estimates, there's well over a million people in the general metroplex of Jerusalem at this time of year. And it says the city, the whole city was drawn into the commotion of Jesus's entrance. This is the first and last time in Jesus's entirely earthly ministry where God's people acknowledge him as king and worship him as king as he actually deserves. And they could not have him more wrong in this moment. Here you have a city of oppressed people awaiting their freedom, stoked out of their minds that their savior might finally be here. And he is, but he's not the savior they're looking for. And that means really bad stuff. Jesus sets this up on purpose. This has to happen at this point. At this point in the story, Jesus will either overthrow, overthrow Rome and free Israel or he'll die. There's no other option because of how much the crowd is whipped up. And Jesus has set it up this way on purpose, which really gets us to the heart of our text. See, we're going to spend this whole week and this whole larger section of scripture that is the Passion Week, exploring the nuances of this tension Jesus lives in. But, 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 but I really want you to do your best to put yourself here. It's, you see, it's so easy, right, to criticize in hindsight, but put yourself in the story. These people are really deeply and unjustly oppressed, and they are longing for freedom. They worship the one true God and their entire identity centers around being God's chosen people rescued from oppression. They've been praying and praying and praying for generations, crying out and asking for justice and asking for freedom. For years upon years, God was silent, but now he shows up and he shows up in power through this man, Jesus. Everything in these people in this city is hoping beyond hope that Jesus will free them right now as God freed them in the past. I mean, imagine Peter, right? This dude has thrown his whole lot in with Jesus. He has left his family, his home, his business, his livelihood, everything in the hope that Jesus is the salvation he's been waiting for. 
He's walked with this man for three years. He's watched him teach about God's coming kingdom. He's watched him do miracles. He's watched him heal the sick and cast out demons. He knows in his heart of hearts that Jesus is the Savior. He puts it out there. Jesus confirms it. Then Jesus shows him, right? He knows for the past several weeks, he's been giving this really confusing teaching. But again, we said this, right? He's probably used to not understanding all of Jesus's teaching. But this, this scene, this thing going on, Peter understands this. The Jewish people understand this. The king entering the city. The people praising him as king and Messiah. It's all happening and it's all happening right now. All Jesus has to do is take this momentum and take this crowd and go and rally the priests and rally the leaders and raise up the people and they can win. They can be free by the power of God. This man, Jesus, he he controls the winds and the waves. What could a Roman army do to him? Like, this is it. This is the moment. What does Jesus do? He comes in, in all the pomp, in all the circumstance, and he goes straight to the temple. And he starts turning over tables and criticizing leaders and casting judgment on the worship. He doesn't rally anyone. He condemns them. This king comes into the city, goes straight to the caretakers he left in charge, and he finds them lacking. So he overturns their tables, condemns their leadership. You can feel the bubble deflate. (laughs) You can feel the energy go out, the momentum come to a halt. This is not how it's supposed to go. This is not what this is supposed to look like. You see it in the crowds, but we can imagine it in Jesus' followers. We can imagine it in Peter, this feeling that this isn't what I thought it was going to be. And that feeling is not going to leave Peter's breast for the next seven days. Now, we're actually going to leave the story there for today. And the reason is this. We're going to continue on through Jesus' Passion Week, through, through several more videos and devotionals and teaching times this week, leading into Easter next Sunday. But the simple truth here that, that launches us into this time and that I think we really need to lean into this morning is simply this. This is how God's kingdom works. He breaks our expectations. He turns them upside down. And that, that's what we actually celebrate. Beloved, that's that's what we're celebrating at Easter. We're worshiping the God who turned our expectations upside down. And it turned out to be amazing on the other end. You see, God's people were expecting another judge, another David, another general, another warrior to come in and free their people. What they got was a kind and humble healer and shepherd who came and endured pain and hardship on their behalf and didn't free them from Roman oppression, but freed them from the bonds of sin and death and the curse. 
See, the kingdom of God takes our expectations and breaks them. But what we find on the other end of this weird upside-down kingdom is what our heart and our soul is actually longing for. What we receive in Jesus and his work is never what we expect and always what we actually need. You see, the whole thing is this. Your father knows what you really need. See, this truth that the Messiah came to do so much more and so much above what was expected of him was true for God's people in the first century. It was true for his followers. It was true for the early church, but it's true for us. It's as true for Red Tree, for you and me right now, as it was for the church then. With everything going on right now, I'm pretty sure you probably have a pretty clear picture of what you need God to do for you. And by the way, by all means, bring that to him. Like we've been talking about this for a few weeks. God delights to hear from you. He loves to hear your concerns. He he loves to meet our needs. But, But let's be honest for a moment. We all know the kingdom of God is huge. It's bigger than us. It's bigger than our understanding of the world. It's bigger than our understanding of our needs. And what's amazing is in this upside down kingdom that subverts expectations, our father knows what we need. We talked about this last week, right? Like we can cast our anxieties to God because he he knows what we actually need. But, But hear this, your father knows what you actually need what you really need. See, we make a list of the things we need. God's people did it in the first century. What we need is freedom from the Romans. What we need is a general and a king and a warrior to rally the people and throw off our oppressors. And what God responded is, no, beloved, what you need is freedom from death and sin. And that's what I'm going to give you. Come on. Our Father knows what we need. He knows our actual needs. He knows our actual hurts. He knows our actual heart. And his kingdom is about that. That's the work that God is about in this world. Meeting the actual soul needs of his creation. The kingdom of God is God going about his plan for ultimate redemption in eternity. And that will often, and man, I mean often, break our expectations in the here and the now. But praise be to God that he is trustworthy. That his kingdom and his plan are just, when it gets down to it, it's just better than our kingdom and our plan. It just is. Beloved, today, as we walk into Holy Week in a stay-at-home order with chaos in our culture and our country and our jobs and our families and our community, trying to figure out what this new normal is, we have a lot of worries and a lot of concerns and God invites us to bring them to him. But let us not forget We have been called into a new kingdom. And Jesus is the king of that kingdom. 
And he made a way for you and I to have citizenship in that kingdom. And that kingdom is upside down. And it does not work the way we think it does. And it subverts our expectations, but it always meets our needs. I'm going to end our time by referencing back to that same prophecy from Isaiah that I talked about a few days ago. So this prophecy is found in Isaiah uh, 51. It was given after uh, Jerusalem was conquered and the nation of Judah was completely destroyed. We're talking about one of the darkest days in all of Israel's history. The, The city of Zion, right? Mount Zion is lying in flames. Their people are killed, murdered, kidnapped, destroyed. They're defeated. They're hopeless. They're lost and distraught. And in the midst of that, the prophet Isaiah, God gives this image of a messenger sprinting out of the hills, out of the wilderness, across the plains, into the ruins of the city to deliver a message to Jerusalem from its king. And this is what the text says. In the midst of the darkest day in Israel's history, God gives them this message from their king. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Beloved of Jesus, your God reigns. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your expectations, of your desires right now, hear this, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Messiah, our King, our God, reigns. He is in control. And he is trustworthy. Here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to give some space for us to actually respond to this truth. We're going to sing another song, and, and, and I would encourage you guys, while that song is going on, man, Maybe you need to just sing along to the song and worship, but but I would really encourage you to take that few minutes and and let those lyrics kind of wash over you and, and spend some time with Jesus for a few minutes. I know that stuff like this, if you've grown up in church and you're like, oh, it's Easter, it's Holy Week, we're gonna do these same texts. And for some of you guys, that, that's not your history. But if you grew up in church, maybe that is your history. And maybe it's really easy to brush past times like this and texts like this, I just want to really encourage you, don't miss this today. Don't miss the power of this story. God is in control. He is doing something powerful and amazing in our midst. And on the other end of it, just like God's people have throughout all of history, we're going to look at what he was doing and how it blew our expectations out of the water, how it turned our ideas and our concepts upside down. And yet on the other end, it was so much better than what we ever dreamt of or would have asked for. I mean, think about God's people in Jesus's day, asking for political freedom when God had for them eternal life. Come on. So find some space. Listen to this song. Be with Jesus. 
Confess to him your worries, your concerns. Bring your anxieties, your troubles to him. He wants to hear them, but beloved, do this. Don't let today pass by without acknowledging that your king is in control, that he has your back, that he knows what's best for you, that he's working those things out. Pray with me, and then we'll respond. Jesus, you are our king. You are such a good king. God, I confess to you that I so often struggle with faith. I struggle to believe you have my best in mind, that you have control over the situation, that you know what is best, that you will actually accomplish what you say. I know those things are true in my head, but so often when the reality of life and circumstances hit me, I just default to mistrust and fear and scheming and trying to control my own life. But God, this morning, I wanna come before you in humble acknowledgement that you are the king and I am the subject. You are in control, you are on your throne. You are the Messiah, you save. I receive. Jesus, I wanna wanna be in that place with everything going on. I wanna trust in your goodness, your provision, your plan. I wanna participate in your kingdom. I wanna proclaim the good news of that amazing upside down expectation inverting kingdom. I wanna be a part of that. Jesus, change my heart. Make me more like you. Give me your faith. And God, do your will in my life, in our church, in our community, in our nation. We love you, Jesus. So we pray these things in your name. Amen.